Hello and welcome to Life with Francie podcast, a place where you will find all kinds of conversation like mental health, self-love, self-care, trauma, hobbies, and more. With this podcast, I want to create a community where we support one another in business and personal life. Hope you enjoy this episode. Now, let's get the show started. Uh, today's episode was thanks to Podmash, an amazing community for podcast hosts and podcast guests, and it has tools and resources resources and you can have amazing conversations like we're about to have today now let's welcome uh, Amanda on today's episode I have the pleasure to talk to her who is an accomplished artist and author public speaker podcast host trauma recovering mentor and a survivor of human trafficking Amanda uses her knowledge on growth and healing to inspire trauma survivors everywhere that they can become anything. I love her mission already. I can't wait to start this conversation with her. Let's welcome Amanda to the show. Now tell us, what is life with you? Life with me is full of ups and downs as it would be with any trauma survivor, of course. <laughs> But yep. it's also... Um, it's an, it's a beautiful thing. My life is absolutely gorgeous. I have this amazing, wonderful husband. I have six cats. Uh, my husband's daughter is expecting, she and her husband are expecting their first baby by the end of the year. So we're about to be grandparents. Life here is incredible and beautiful. Congrats on the baby. That's so nice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a different uh, season. So I love that journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so you had me at trauma. So you don't, you might not know a lot about me and anything about me, but trauma survivor over here as well. And I just love the way that you're using your story to help out others. That's something that I'm doing. Um, how did your mission start it? It started well after I had actually gotten out of human trafficking. So I was out and free for a number of years. And I guess it was, let's see, it was 2011 when I escaped. It was 2019 when I found out that the man who'd been trafficking me uh, had made me famous on a pornography website by putting up a bunch of photos and videos of me. And he included personal contact information so that people could follow me on social media. They could find me at my home, whatever. And that was when I said, I, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of, of hiding. I had been for about eight years at that point, trying to live a very quiet life. I had even moved from one state to another, just trying to get away from this mess. And when this happened, I realized that I couldn't run and hide anymore, that I needed to face this head on. And if I didn't, then it was going to keep happening like this for the rest of my life. And I could either roll over and give up and die, or I could stand up for myself and learn how to fight. So we started really talking about what had happened to me. And when I did, it was really quiet. I was this very mm -hmm. mild, meek, kind of shy person. I didn't want to go on stage. I wasn't comfortable being on stage. I had talked about different parts of my life, but I had never talked about that big part of my life. And then I wrote the book. So the book came out in, uh, I wrote it in December of 2020, the entire book while working two full-time jobs. 150 page book called custom justice and being able to get all of that out of me and putting it down on paper helped me to not only define it, 
but helped me to differentiate it from who I am and realize that this is only a part of my story. It does not define me. It is not who I am. And now that I have it down on paper, I can turn around and walk away from it and leave it on the shelf. That was huge. At that point, that was when I really found my voice and I really started speaking out and people started telling me, wait, I've had this happen to me. I thought I was alone. I didn't know anybody else had ever been through something like this. That was when I really started to take this whole story of mine and say, if I'm helping other people, then I need to help at least one more. And then when I got one more, I said, okay, now just one more. And when I got one more, I just said, okay, just one more, just one more. And now it's become just one more every single day of my life. Wow. Ah, you're an inspiration and motivation (laughs) and everything else together. I can relate to the fact, you know, just saying it out loud. I just did six months ago. So I'm new to my journey. So like you're giving me hope because that's where I want to be you know, with the things that I have survived. And I just can't imagine. Can you tell a little bit about that story? Absolutely. So with most survivors of human trafficking, we grow up in households where we have experienced some kind of early childhood abuse. I'm no stranger to any of that. My father was physically abusive. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. And my brother was sexually abusive. So the first time I remember ever being molested, I was only four. I grew up in my teen and preteen years with this constant bombardment of all these different types of abuse. I was molested repeatedly by total strangers, by family members. I had an uncle by marriage. I had um, a young boy at a swimming pool whose name I will never remember. By the time I was 17, I had been raped by somebody that I thought was my best friend. So when I was 18, I was looking for the love and attention wherever I could get it. I had never really gotten it at home. And looking for it wherever I could landed me in some really rough places. And some people have come out and said that they don't think that I was trafficked. I just made very poor choices. So it's important to recognize what the definition of human trafficking is before I go too much further. And this isn't something I would suggest people necessarily use Google for or Wikipedia. These are not reputable sources. A reputable source would be someplace like the Department of Homeland Security. Now, the Department of Homeland Security here in the U.S. defines human trafficking as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or commercial sex acts from another person. So a few key takeaways here is that you're using force, fraud, or coercion to get somebody to do something for you. You don't have to um, tie them down. You don't have to chain them up. There's also no mention of transportation, human smuggling and human trafficking often overlap in big significant ways, but these are separate issues that need to be addressed. One does not equal the other. That's also the same with prostitution. Prostitution is not always human trafficking and human trafficking very rarely ever looks like prostitution, but there's a massive overlap. So huge, huge issue with what's here in the U.S. We constantly think of it as only happening to young children who are being kidnapped by total strangers and windowless vans. When I was 18 years old, I was trafficked by a man that I had been dating and living with. He gave me away to his best friend for a birthday weekend. And that was the first time I was ever trafficked. I was taken to a hotel in Las Vegas where I was put in the hotel room and uh, told that if I I were to leave the room, I wouldn't be allowed back in. 
We were there for a total of 52 hours. I did not have a key to the room. I was allowed to order room service once a day. And when I was able to order room service, uh, they were given very specific instructions to drop it off at the door and leave. I was not allowed to see them. They were not allowed to see me and nobody was to ask questions. And this was very specific and very strategic. And he paid them to make sure that they did these things. So there's already a lot of red flags here that are popping up, but still nobody cared enough to do anything about it. This was back in 1998. So human trafficking really isn't something that was on the radars. It's not something we really even started talking about until well after the last time I was trafficked. So I was trafficked three different times in my life. <clears throat> that was just the first. The second time I was trafficked by my landlords, basically in Florida. I had gone there to stay with my grandmother. And when I got there, my grandmother had been told by my parents that if she took me in, they would never speak to her again. So this young couple took me in and said that they were going to give me a place to stay until I could get on my feet. But what they really meant was they were going to give me a place to stay until I, until they found the highest bidder. And they sold me to a young man by the name of Esteban. I was locked up for 23 and a half hours in a small room with no food, no water, and no bathroom facilities of any kind. And I was able to get my, get myself out of there because I grew up in the 80s and 90s and it was this great series on TV called MacGyver. I think it went for seven or eight series seasons. And this TV show was about a man who could basically fix or work his way out of anything with nothing but a paperclip and a rubber band. The man was magical. I, it was all about science and I loved it. I grew up watching it, was completely addicted to it. And I sat down and I thought to myself, what would MacGyver do? And I got out of that room, but I did not go back for the other people that I know were there. And I had a lot of survivor's guilt from that. So when I moved on with my life, I left Florida and I went to California because that was about as far as I could get away from Florida without having to face really nasty weather in, in uh, Seattle. <laughs> and I got all the way out to California and I loved it. I was on Alias and Will and Grace and I modeled for Harley Davidson. I did a lot of really cool stuff while I was there. I really started to establish myself. I got my first apartment by myself. I got my first car by myself. When I was 24, I started a long distance friendship with somebody. And seven years later, he had come to visit me. I had gone to visit him. We decided we were in love. And he asked me to get a fiance visa to move to Scotland to go and be with him for the rest of my life. I got really excited about it. You know, this man was a police officer. He was a safe person. He'd been always kind and gentle and very sweet to me. And I watched his little girl grow up in photos and videos. We used to share a meal almost every day for a while where he would be eating. I think it was breakfast and I was having dinner or the other way around. I don't remember anymore. <laughs> and it, we would do this over Skype. So we would actually have the video screens up and we would be eating our meals and having a conversation as though we were on a date and it felt normal. It took him seven years to ask me to come over there. It took him seven days to start trafficking me. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was rough. It was rough. The first week there was great, but after that first seven days, things kind of took a, a slide quickly. And I wanted to get out of there as fast as I could. He had already taken my driver's license, my passport, my debit card, all that stuff. And he put them in a small safe that he hid under the bed. And I didn't have the combination to it. So I had to con him into these things so that I could try and get out of there in some way. 
I had a little over $2,000 in my bank account. I had enough to be able to get me a flight home back to California and just get out of there. So one night while the abuse was happening, I, I had spent some time as a waitress and I knew the value of making sure that you keep somebody's coffee cup full when they're in a diner. And I did that with his whiskey glass that night. I got him really drunk. <laughs> and when he got really, really drunk towards the end of the night, um, I helped him upstairs to get him into bed. And I told him as I was pulling the safe out, you know, if you get, if you get out my documents for me tomorrow, I could go to the bank. And I could go pull out my money and we could, we can put it in your bank account so we can actually spend it because otherwise we'll never have access to it. So he pulled it out, all of my documentation. And instead I went straight to the internet the next day and tried to buy myself a flight home. This was 2011. And the very first flight out was something like $12,000 for the same flight that same day. And I knew there was no way that I could afford that. I had a little over two grand. So I looked at the next day and the next day and the next day, the first flight out that I could actually aff afford to take was five days out. So I bought the flight. I had a little less, a little over $11 left after the purchasing the flight. And I didn't care. I would go hungry. I would ask people for food. I would be homeless or whatever. When I got back to California, I didn't care. I just wanted to get out of there. And I said to myself, one of the most dangerous phrases that somebody can ever say to themselves or to anybody else. It's only five days. I've been through worse. I can make it through this. No, don't ever say that to yourself because you never know what can happen and it can and often does get worse. Don't think to yourself, I can get through this when it comes to abuse. You don't have to get through this. You need to get help. You need to get out because in that five days, the abuse continued and was so severe, I ended up with a kidney infection that almost killed me. And I was in the hospital when that flight took off. And I was stuck there again. I nearly killed myself while I was there. I tried to commit suicide by train. I used to go down to an old church and pray that somebody would just see me and nobody would see me. And if they ever looked at me, they would see right through me. Everybody seemed to have this look on their face of, she looks like she's having a bad day, but that's not my problem. Nobody asked me, are you okay? Because if anybody had asked me, are you okay? I would have felt compelled to tell them, no, no, I'm not. I live with a police officer who was doing this to me. Hmm. He is selling me to people. He is exploiting me. He is, this is basically forced rape. Um, when he found out about the plane ticket, that's when the torture began. So I'm also a survivor of sport torture. I was waterboarded for fun. I was deprived of sleep for up to, up to eight and a half days. I believe I lost count because of the hallucinations. I was starved and I was told that he could get more money for me if I stayed thin. I ended up with something called Crohn's disease where my body started rejecting different types of food. When he figured out what those foods were, that was exclusively what he was feeding me because then it would cause me to throw up. Mm. It was awful. And after I tried to kill myself, there was this moment where a little boy, he was probably about four years old, looked at me and he was the one who prevented me from doing it. Because the way he looked at me that day at the train station, it was as though he knew me. 
And it was the first time anybody had looked at me that way in such a long, long time that it felt alien. And I knew that I could not commit suicide in front of this child because I could not do what other people had been doing to me my entire life. They had taken away my innocence when I was four. I could not do that to this little boy. So I went back to my prison and I started thinking there has to be another way. There's got to be another option. And I started to convince him that I had what we used to refer to as Stockholm syndrome, we now call trauma bonding, where we bond so much with our abusers that we are convinced that we love them deeply and would do anything for them. And this is a very real issue. And people that have never been through it will never fully understand it. And that's okay. They don't have to. But they can't be judging other people who do go through mm -hmm. this. <laughs> and I convinced this man over a series of months of abuse that I really did have this. I would do anything for him. I didn't complain. I allowed him to do whatever it was that he was going to do to me. And I just constantly told him how much I loved him. And once you do start going through this, if you are trying to convince somebody that you have trauma bonding, you do start to develop some sense of trauma bonding. When I got out of there, it was really hard on me. But there towards the end of my stay, I told him, you know, on a fiance visa, we were supposed to get married on this date that we gave to the passport authorities. And we didn't do that. So at this point, my visa is about to expire. And we have a couple of choices. Either we can run off and get married and I can apply for the marriage visa, or you can send me back to the States and I can stay there for six months and I can come back. Because if I overstay my visa, then I can be kicked out of the UK. This was Scotland. Be kicked out of the UK forever, never allowed to come back according to UK law, and you can lose your job as a police officer. So if you send me back, I can sleep on somebody else's couch for six months, and then I can come back here in time for Christmas. And within two hours, he bought me a round trip flight. And he hunted me after that because he knew I wasn't going to come back. He knew he had made a mistake by letting me go. I tried to report him to his superior officers um, after the first time that he took all those photos and videos and he shared them with a man that I had gone to work for, a man that I had known for 14 years. He destroyed the friendship and I lost the job. And then he started sending all this stuff to friends of mine every time he found out who a friend of mine was through social media. He would send all of this stuff to them. And he would destroy friendship after friendship after friendship. My best friend in the whole world at the time didn't understand how something like this could happen to somebody like me who always seemed so sure of herself. It was all an act. Um, <laughs> but she thought that this couldn't happen without my express consent. So she started telling people instead that I had been a high-priced call girl because that made more sense to her. And it destroyed our friendship too. I'd lost everything. I'd lost all of my friends. I'd lost multiple jobs. I had lost everything that I held dear to me. I had no family of my own. The people that I had considered my family were no longer people that I could trust to communicate with. And that's when I packed up and moved to Colorado. And I'd been living out here for several years when the pornography attack happened in 2019. Wow. And from all of that, like, 
people uh, would tell me, you know, with my story, like, you should be not functional, you know, not a human with jobs, with people to love, to share some joy. How was you able to find that through all of it? Because you're a light. Like, I see you and, like, there's so much light coming out of you. And it's just like, <laughs> wow, like, she just said all these horrible things. And she still has a smile on. How do you do it? It took some therapy. Um, I was pretty closed off for a long time. And I did. I was a master at putting on a brave face, at pretending to be happy even when I wasn't. So on the day that I tried to commit suicide, I was walking around that train station right before that, smiling at people. Because it made me happy. It made me feel better to make somebody else feel better. And I know that it's something as simple as a smile, but if you smile at somebody, you can actually make their day better. And that was, that was my whole purpose right then was I'm going to make these people stay better. And then I'm going to go do this horrible thing to myself, you know, and probably ruin their lives, but you know, right in the moment I can make their day a little better. That's what it was all about was putting on that brave face and completely pretending to be this happy person that I wasn't and depressed suicidal people will absolutely do that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I wrote the book that I really started to heal from everything that I'd been through. So when the pornography attack happened in mid 2019, I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization well, two of them. The first one paired me up with pro bono legal services to be able to help fight and get this stuff pulled down off of the pornography websites. But every time one went down, two more went up. So I would reach out to the other uh, anti-trafficking organization that paired me up with a counselor. And that first counselor I talked to, she had never talked to somebody who had uh, complex PTSD. And the stories I was telling her of my life, I was apparently going into too much detail because you don't think about those things with a therapist. You just let loose. Mm -hmm. And she was so new to the industry that I pretty much destroyed her. She's left the industry and she will never be a therapist. Wow. She walked away from it all. She couldn't deal with it. <laughs> so the next person that I talked to, they paired me up with a second therapist who had experience working with other survivors mm -hmm. of human trafficking. And that's what her uh, specific degree was in. So it's important to make sure that if you are looking for a counselor or a therapist, you find one that understands your basic needs. And I came to her and said, okay, these are my basic needs. Yes, I'm a survivor of human trafficking, number one. Number two, don't come at me with prescription medication right out of the gate. I don't want a Band-Aid. I want a shovel. Let's get to the root of the problem. Yeah. And number three, don't treat me like I am some fragile porcelain doll, because if I was going to break, I'd have done it already. And going in with this mindset, with her not pulling the punches, with her understanding, hey, I'm ready to do the hard work. I just need to get over these few hurdles and you can help me to do that. Going in with that mindset, with her knowing what my expectations are and me knowing that she, she understood this was the best pairing possible. She and I talked for about a year. And that was when I wrote my entire autobiography at the end of our therapy sessions. She told me one day, I don't think there's much more that I can do to help you. Mm. What are you going to do next? And I said, I think I'm ready to write my book finally. She said, oh, that's fantastic. I'll check in with you. This was November of, of 2020. She said, I'll check in with you in January because Christmas is right around the corner. And we'll take a little time off. 
If you need me in the meantime, you know how to reach me, but you know, otherwise I'll talk to you in January. I said, great. So in January, actually, when she reached out, she said, how's it going? And I said, oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? She said, no, that's not what I asked. How's it going? I said, oh, she said, yeah, the book. I said, oh, it's done. She said, is it, it's done. Is this a short book? No, it's 350 pages. She wow. said, don't you still have two full-time jobs? Yes, ma'am, I sure do. She said, how did you manage to write this entire 350-page book in a matter of one month while working that many hours? And I told her, when you're ready, when you know what it is that you need to say, how do you stop yourself from doing it? It came pouring out of me. I could not turn it off. I was up sometimes until two or three o'clock in the morning writing that book, driving my roommate nuts because he could hear me typing the whole time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. But it was, it was a beautiful experience being able to take all of that poison that had built up in my body and ripping it out of me and throwing it into the computer and walking away from it every night. I started wow. sleeping better. I understood myself better. Everything started functioning better. That book was published on my 10-year anniversary of freedom from trafficking, which was June 19th of 2021. And the following month was when I met the man that's now my husband. Wow. Like you had to release all the trauma and everything to find your husband. Like just perfect timing. And oh my goodness. <laughs> jobs and book like I can relate because it's the same thing with the podcast everybody's like oh my gosh how do you do it with a full-time job and you're working 10 and 12 hours and you still will do interviews like right now my is what is it August and this interview will be in October so like I'm hustling I'm trying to get it done before crazy season so I get that once you're in the flow uh but yeah how can you help one that wants to tell their story yeah. there are so many different ways to help people that want to share their own stories um one of the things is to make sure that you're in the right mindset to do this journaling is a great place to start i love it <laughs> <laughs> and you can take your journals and later on edit them into a book you can figure out what you want the world to know and what you want to keep private some people just take their journals and just publish it. Like, this is my story. Put it through an editor a few times, I would highly suggest. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the biggest part is to make sure that you don't do what's called trauma vomiting, which is where mm. you write out such significant details of the incidences of abuse that it becomes almost, um, almost taboo, sexualizing the nature of your abuse. This is, this yeah. is a very bad thing. You definitely don't want to go down that road. And that was, it was easier for me than it was for a lot of people because I've always been extremely modest anyway. And when I'm dealing with that level of modesty, my issue isn't talking about the sexual nature of what happened. My issue was toning it back when it came to the torture. And the feeling of drowning. I still can't have water splash in my face because of the waterboarding. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I still have issues with food because of the forced starvation. I've put on a lot of weight in recent years because it caused not only Crohn's disease, but I believe thyroid disease is related to this as well. Um, I have chronic hives. I have, I think that's it. That might be it. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's enough issues, right? Yeah, no, no, I totally get it. And yeah, I got seven mental health di- uh, diagnosis because of it. So I understand that there's stuff that has come up with. Have you heard of the book, The Body Keeps Core? I have that book that was given I, to me I by a lady I have to read it. I always promote it. I have not read it, but I know that it helps out a lot because I can see that for me, like it would be like something as a watch. It was a trigger as a, for so it's like little things like that, that it might seem simple for other people, but I truly understand that it's not as very real for us and to bringing us back. But in all of that, that you're doing with your mission and all, how did the podcast came about? Oh my gosh. So in 2020, uh, when the, uh, also check out toxic heal your body sometime. I would check it out. <laughs> okay. Really, really good one. I'm in the middle of that one now. But in 2020, uh, when the pandemic hit, I had been a part of a group of local survivors of human trafficking here in the state of Colorado. We were meeting once a week and going through life skills classes and art classes and just doing fun stuff together. And it's not that we were getting together and talking about the horrors of our stories, but rather that we were getting together and understanding that nobody in the room was judging us because we all understood what the other person went through was horrible. And we have these little triggers and stuff and we knew how to avoid them. And when the pandemic hit and everybody was locked down and they stopped doing these groups, I lost my sense of community and I needed somewhere to turn to. So I had seen somebody post on one of the groups that I was a part of on Facebook about how easy it was to start a podcast. And it's like, well, maybe I'll give that a shot. And I started the podcast that year. And most of the episodes are just me sitting in a car venting and talking about, you know, how, what a pain it was to be sitting in the car at the DMV waiting to get my stickers for my (laughs) license plate because the pandemic had changed everything. And there were a couple of episodes where I did early, early interviews. One of them was with a childhood friend of mine that I hadn't seen since the sixth grade. And another one was a well-known photographer out here in Colorado Springs that I had never worked with before, but I was still modeling at the time. He had asked me to come to his studio and do a shoot with him. And I absolutely love the photos. Very authentic 1940s glam, just gorgeous photography. And I talked to him about his history and why he got into photography. And I did this on the podcast while we were watching the sun go down. It was really cool. I was like, you know, I think I like this but I don't know how to start finding guests for my podcast. I really was so new to it. I was completely lost. So the entire second season of my podcast, I took the time to read my autobiography, Custom Justice, one chapter at a time, because there were enough chapters to fill up an entire year. <laughs> and I just kind of took it easy for that year and tried to figure out how I was going to refocus the podcast. So as soon as I was done with that season of the podcast, I immediately jumped on doing the interviews. I started interviewing other authors who had overcome 
their own trauma and learned how to write about it and how the writing helped them to release a lot of their own inner turmoil and stuff. And since then, the podcast has completely blown up. It's done incredibly well. So much better than just me reading my own book, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the book was good and it got a lot of people starting to get interested. But yeah. It was a great way to lead into talking to other authors. Yeah. But now it's all about, it's not about me. It's all about these other people, the things that they have gone through and the incredible journeys of overcoming their own problems and their own uh, life circumstances and their traumas and what they did to heal. And it's all about offering stories of hope. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it so much because, you know, that's what life with fancy is all about. Like first I thought that I was just going to be talking about my personal life and things like that. And then I, I didn't like that because you don't want to say too much out there. <laughs> and then I started meeting uh people. And so now I have interviewed over 50 people and I just love it because it's, you get hope like right now you're giving me life with your story and I'm like I'm ready to tell more about mine <laughs> you know yes so I just I just love that but is there anything else that you would like my listeners to know about you or your mission absolutely if they're interested in any of my books I just published my 13th book uh, on wow June 1st of this year uh, if they're interested in any of my books or the Trauma Recovery Mentorship or the Trauma Recovery Workbook series, just go to my website, growthfromdarkness.com. And if you're going through hard times, whether that's human trafficking or any other kind of trauma, understand that while we grew up with the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, mm -hmm. that phrase is a lie. That was coined by Frederick Nietzsche in the 1800s, shortly before he died in an insane asylum. We can let that one go. It is not our abusers. It is not our abuse. And it is not our traumatic experiences that make us stronger. We already have that strength within us. We just mm. have to find the shovel and dig a little deeper to find where it is. Ah, oh, I love that. And did we mention the name of the podcast? Oh, I don't think we did. It is called uh, The Survivors by Amanda Blackwood. I love and that. It's, uh, I gotta go and look for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I do actually have three podcasts now. Uh, that is my primary podcast. I do have one that's co-hosted with a lady in Australia. So you get an awesome accent there uh, called Growth from Darkness. And nice. we talk about trauma reactions, what the long-term consequences are of not fighting back against them and how to fight back against them so that you can have a better and healthier life and relationship with other people. And then my third podcast is brand new, but it's short, short episodes, like usually around or less than five minutes. And it's oh, all wow. about the different phobias. And it's a different episode every week about a different phobia, mm. uh, just learning what they are. And if there's anybody that I've learned of in uh, famous circles that might have had this phobia and what they did to fight back. Oh, wow. Well, girl, you are busy. How do you have time for all of that? <laughs> uh, my husband makes sure that I have time. He knows this is my passion. Aww. He told me to pursue it and go do it. That's awesome. I love that. I tried to do a second podcast and then I tried to co-host with another one, but I barely have time to focus because like, this is my main baby. So I'm like, I'm putting all my focus on that. And then once I get freedom from my job, 
then hopefully I will have more time to do other things. But I love that because they they're all needed. Like now I'm interested about the phobias because I love <laughs> I have a lot. So I can't <laughs> wait to check it out. There was a study done a couple of years ago that linked a lot of phobias to traumatic experiences. Oh, which is you. why I dug into this. Die, I, mama. Like, I need to learn more. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I am. Like um every time it, a lot of therapy. Uh, I had a mentor for a couple of years. So I have spent a lot of money on my mental health to get me to, to where the place that I am today. And then once I see a trigger, I'm like, oh, hello. How you doing? I guess we're learning today. We're going <laughs> to learn what was this about and how we can like control it or like let it go. So I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a very real thing. It's a bizarre connection, but totally makes sense too. Yeah, and knowledge is power. So yes. the more we know, like better to treat ourselves and love ourselves. And I learned like loving myself was exactly what I needed to be able to express my stuff. And then once I said it out loud, you know, so I, I love your energy and your passion and I'm about to check everything about you because <laughs> you gave me um energy and power you know to to be able to say more awesome I hope so I hope so if you need help figuring out how to say anything let me know I will <laughs> uh where can my listeners find you um, if you go to my website, Growth from Darkness, there should be links there to all of these things, except for the Phobia podcast. The Phobia podcast is just kind of a fun little experiment I'm throwing out there. So I don't really have links to it. Just trying to see if it gets any followers on its own. It's called That's a Phobia. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on your show and being vulnerable and sharing your story. Of course. Thank you so much, Francie. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. You know, you can find this podcast and all major platforms as well as my YouTube channel. If you enjoy this kind of content, don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and follow on your favorite social, uh, podcast app. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Those are helpful for others to find the show. I sure appreciate it. Hope you have a blessed day. Bye-bye.